Welcome back, everybody, all three of you, to this week's episode of Cake Bites. I've already had this week's guest on the show before. This is actually a continuation of my interview with Billy Joe Kane, who was my guest from episode two, the Defender Champion from the Texas Video Game Championships of 1982. Billy actually went on to work in the video game industry and is still working in the industry today. He actually got hired on at Origin right around the time that they got bought by EA. And by right around the same time, I mean literally his first day was the day that they announced the merger. So (laughs) he actually talks about uh, his amazing first day at work. (laughs) <laughs> with Origin EA and then kind of end his time working in the video game industry up until he uh, starts working in VR, which he's currently doing now. So um, without further ado, here is my good friend, Billy Joe Kane. I think the Defender thing lasted for a long time, uh, and then there was a lot of home gaming that I was still kind of playing around with, but I sort of moved into uh, computer mode at, oh, yeah. at that. Yeah. Uh, started playing Apple IIEs and all that good stuff. Uh, seriously got nerdy on the Ultimas and the Choplifters and all those old school games. <laughs> But yeah, it was the 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 arcade time kind of ended because I also wanted getting a car and you know growing up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, uh, but you you took your love of the games mm-hmm. and, and I mean, and you made it into a career. Yep. Um, so when I was in high school, <clears throat> I took uh, I took programming in my junior year in a in a city nearby, and they had like IBM computers with external hard drives and all kinds of just wonderful stuff, super high-end, and I was like, oh, this is awesome, so I learned how to do some programming there. Then my senior year, I came back, and they had us working on Trash 80s with no hard drives. And I was like, I'm supposed to type... Okay, so last year, I had a disk drive that I could save things on, and I could make changes to. So this year, I have to sit in a room and write my program down on paper. You look at it. Then I type it in, and if it works one time, I get a grade. I'm like, what is this? This is not This is not programming. And so that was the end of my programming career. <laughs> I lost all interest in things of that nature. Okay. It sucks, but it's what happened. And then after school then, after you graduated, what well, did you do? That's a great question. So I, when I graduated high school... Um, I had started playing music, and I really, really liked that, and I wanted to pursue a music career and see where that would go. Um, and at the same time, I was also um, pursuing a business degree. So I moved up to well, I took some music classes in Austin or in my hometown, moved up here, um, started playing music, and then also going to our community college, or went to UT for a while, then went to the community college. Um, Lots and lots of really bad jobs, <laughs> lots of them for a long the time. Course, though, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't trade any of it really. Yeah. I mean, the stuff that that's happened to me, and then um, 
my roommate Steve, whom we grew up together and wound up in Austin together, he got a job at, uh, well, he went to apply for a job at Origin Systems, which was like the biggest, most, you know, intricate game maker in the universe at the time. Um, he went in to apply for a job. He saw, he said, he saw in the newspaper, it said, video game artist wanted. That's and Steve it? was like, I think I'm going to try for that. <laughs> and, uh, what and year he had, was this? This was 91, okay. 90 or 91. And he went in with all of his, all the art that he had done and all of his D&D materials and world building, stuff like that. And he came home and I'm like, dude, are you a video game artist? He goes, no. And I was like, well, what the fuck, man? Did they see your work? <laughs> he says, well, I laid it all out on a table and then we started talking about all the Dungeons and Dragons stuff, which were campaigns that he and I had, I mean, I played and he had DM'd and all this kind of jazz. And uh, they wound what? up giving him a job as a game designer. Oh, really? He came home with not an art job, a design job. And I was like, uh, do they have any other openings? Because I did not know that was a career. And uh, he was like, hey, man, let me go to my first day at work. <laughs> and I was like, all right. So um, so he went, he went in, and I just started learning everything I could about Origin Systems. I was like, I am going to work there because this shit I'm doing sucks, and yeah. I've got to do something else. I was working for the Texas Education Agency, and I ironed a shirt every day and wore slacks and a friggin' tie. <laughs> so I went in... Uh, so. While Steve was working at Origin, I would go in and see him all the time. We'd hang out. Um, I'd bring lunch or dinner to him, and he's working like stupid hours. He was in stupid crunch. And uh, at night, after after they everybody decided they'd worked, you know, fourteen hours was plenty. And so then we would all they'd all quit work, um, and we'd go out into the hallways in this giant atrium of this building out on Wild Basin here, and we play laser tag with these uh, green guns that we used to have. And remember, I just moved, so I have a lot of my stuff out, but this is one of them. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I know. It's like it's just, it's just stuff overpiling until I can figure out where it needs to go. But yeah, it's like a little laser tag gun, and we all had them on, and it was so much fun. It was yeah. the first, It was the original first-person shooter for all of us. And wow. we were all up and down the hallways, and we had teams, and we were tagging and doing all the things that you would expect. And we had friends with military training, so we bothered to learn that stuff anyway so i was at origin constantly playing green guns and getting to know you know steve's roommates co-workers and uh they started a softball team uh david Byer, one of steve's roommates there started a softball team and uh they managed to scrounge up 11 nerds to play and apparently he needed 12 yeah and i go and i was like well do you have to be an employee and dave goes I'm in charge, so no. <laughs> I was like, all right. So I got on the Origin softball team without being an employee. So I'm out playing baseball or softball, rather, with like Richard Garriott, Warren Spector, Chris Roberts, oh you know, gosh. and all these other. Well, Warren didn't come out to play softball, but he was the rest around. of Yeah, he was. Oh, yeah, he was there. And Warren, Warren probably thought I worked there, too, because Steve was on Warren's team. And, um, yeah, so I'm out there messing around with all those guys, and I'm at the place all the time, and they just probably think, figured that I worked there because they didn't know every single person all the time. Anyway, so a few months later, I wound up getting a job there. Oh, but, wow. Yeah, so I was so freaking excited. Um, my first day at Origin, uh, <laughs> I had 
man, I told the guy at the Texas Education Agency that I had, I was like, I gotta go. And he was like, I was working as a temp. And he goes, uh, and I was making like four fifty an hour or something like that. <laughs> Which, you know, was it bare was barely enough to survive on, uh, with four other roommates. And uh so I, I told him, I was like, look, I've, I ha- I've gotten a job offer. I have to take it. And he's like, and the, 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 the guy that was in charge of the Texas Education Agency group I was in, he goes, uh, he goes, well, hang on just a second. And he goes and walks in another room and comes back with a job offer, like a full-on offer letter. I never even thought about this because I was a temp working yeah. through another agency. He rolls in with a uh, $27,000 job offer, which was a lot of money. Um and I said, well, hey, thanks, man. I appreciate that, but I'm sorry I can't do it. It's like if and, only they would have offered you something more stable. Maybe. Oh, no, I still would have quit. I, I mean, still would have quit. It wouldn't have mattered anything. I don't blame you. <laughs> yeah, I was like, are you kidding me? So but that would have just made me a little salty because I'd be like, I've been working oh. as a temp here for fucking forever. Oh, I'm... <sighs> I ba- my job was basically to pour water uphill. You know, I my job was to file all the budgets for all of the different... Um, uh, school districts in Texas, and they would they printed them out and they got them they got them and I had to file them in all these millions of files physically because the guy that was in charge didn't want it and I'd get about halfway done and they'd say oh we made a mistake in the formula and then they'd reprint them all and I had to go through and take the old ones out and put the new ones in oh I did gosh. that for three months solid no thanks no thank you and uh, oh I eventually wound up. Um, just putting a computer there and said, I'll just sit right here next to the computer and anytime the boss wants it, I'll just print one out all by myself. So when he came back with that offer for 27000 he goes, well, and I said, no thanks. He goes, well, how much are they going to pay you at Origin? And I said, 18000 No, it was thirteen, I think. thirteen or eighteen. Shit, I can't remember anymore. Let's say it was eighteen. So I, I said, oh, it's 18000 And they're like going, he goes, this is 27000 And I'm like going, yeah, but if I want to raise here, you have to die. He looks at me, he goes, you're right. <laughs> he says, get out of here. <laughs> but I mean... <laughs> Go out and pursue your dream. Yeah. But, but I mean, at the same time, I, I can't even imagine what it, what, what it felt like to be... To, to get an offer from a, a company to work in, with video games after... I thought you were going to say the education. Oh, no, no. Oh, man. You know, the dream job for all of yeah, us. Yeah, who wouldn't want to be pushing paper up a hill? Into a fire. Exactly. But like working yeah. for Origin, especially Origin at the oh, time, I can't even me? imagine. Right. So I roll in on my first day and they go, hey man, it's nice to have you here. Here's a Sega. I was like, what? So they're all <laughs> handing out Sega Genesis as everyone walked into the door that day. I'm like, well, what the hell's going on here? And they're like, yeah, we just got bought by Electronic Arts. And oh so they gosh. were giving out game, game systems and games and then they were like, and I'm like, uh, this is my first day. Where am I supposed to go? They're like, we're going, we're going out to the lake. And so they had rented a freaking boat. And so we, <laughs> we got on this boat, Sega Genesis games everywhere. They give us just tons of booze, and we went through all these different. Well, we went through orientations and how it was going to change and affect everything. Like everybody got health insurance and vision and dental and stock. And you were like, I'm like, this is my first day at work. It just kept getting better and yeah. better and better. And then they take us out on the lake and get us get us plowed as hell. I'm like, this, I'm like, you cannot beat this. This is the best day, wow. like ever. And then it's like, and then the next thing is like, you know, yeah, but if I'd have gotten a job here a month ago, I would have had stock options. And I was like, nope, push that thought out of my mind. That's ridiculous. Yeah. I'm freaking, I'm gonna design games. What the hell is that? 
And uh, I'll I'll tell you what it was. It was a lot of damn work. Oh, Because we were, we were, we created these games that just had so much content. And as a, as a designer or a level designer, you had to, you built everything with little squares. And so somebody had to put all the squares together and it was just tedious, tedious. What was uh, the first game you got to work on with, I guess at that point it was EA? The, the first game I worked on was um, a Super Nintendo adaptation of Ultima 7. Okay. And uh, Ultima 7 is known for being a very, very, very large game with a lot, a lot, a lot of content. And we had to shove all that into a little teeny tiny Super Nintendo cartridge. <laughs> um, and we did the best we could. But uh, What was it on originally? It was on a PC okay. originally, yeah. It was really just a sprawling, enormous game. I mean, big, I mean, bigger than anything that was out at the time. We built an enormous continent with all sorts of things. There was stuff in there like if you attacked a wolf and ran off before it died, that thing would chase you around. You didn't know it, but it would stalk you and come and wind up try to kill you whenever you go to sleep if you're out in the forest. Oh, wow. There were so many weird AI things that were going on in those games that I don't think people even really realized, but we were nerds that had a lot of time, and they could write script. They're like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if... And so the designers that could that could write in their scripting language, um, that's just what they would do. Yeah. They'd stay up till 2 in the morning making the wolf chase you. <laughs> because they could. Wow. What, what what would you say is your favorite project you worked on uh, with them at that first period of... Well, the, fir- the very first uh, fun, t- fun thing that I worked on that was uh, just nothing but crazy awesome was uh, Rugby World Cup, <laughs> which was uh, in the UK. So I had um, I worked with this really great team on the SNES version of Ultima Seven. And that was on, here in Austin. It was here in Austin, and then the uh, Savage Empire port to Super Nintendo, and then we did a Wing Commander Two port, uh, which we finished, but it never never shipped. Oh. Wow. Uh, which is its own legend. Everybody wants to know where is the where are the copies of it, and they don't exist, which drives me crazy. But. <sighs> I mean, and we that's can one talk of the things. It, but we let's talk about that well, though, that's, because that's interesting, I and mean, that's a big aspect of the industry that people don't realize. Because yeah. you, you crunch hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours into a port or a game, and then it never ships. You know what? What do you have to show for that time? Uh, that right there. Besides itself, the legend. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah, and eventually it becomes a legend because enough people care about that game uh, universe for it. But there's a whole lot of things that kind of happen. I mean, um, on the on the bad side, it would be, at least for, I think, the industry and history, the bad side is that if a game, when a game gets killed or doesn't ship, if, you know, even if it gets completed but never gets shipped, people don't back everything up. So it's like all that work goes to garbage. You yeah. know, it, because a game in a, at any point in time, a game may be a little different on each person's machine. And then when somebody presses the button to make a build of that thing, then that is like the authentic version of the game. Well, when games die in the middle of production, um, nobody's there to hit that last button to put the whole thing together and put it on a disc and then deliver it to the Smithsonian Institute for record keeping. It's like, yeah, everybody is pissed off. They might have gotten fired. The whole studio might have gotten shut down. Or 
um, they've got shuffled off to another project and nobody has time to, to do anything with it. So a lot of gaming history has gotten lost because of that. Yeah. Um, source code is gone for, you know, the vast majority of everything. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and that's the, that's kind of the, the business, well, it's not even really the business side. The business side is that it, hopefully somebody made a decision to kill the game before they just kept thinking you had this sunk cost fallacy where you just keep working on it, put a little more money in, a little more money, a little more money in, a little more money in. Um, but the, on the human side of it, when, when a game gets killed, if it's killed, I mean, it's devastating. Yeah. And it doesn't matter whether you're working, you know, 40 hours a week or 120 hours a week, it's still devastating. One is like, one is just kind of breaks your heart, and the other can crush your soul because yeah. you poured so much of your life into it. And unfortunately, I've had a number of those games happen. You know, it's like yeah. you just kill yourself and kill yourself, and the company will come in and say, this is important, and it's important for our quarter or for our fiscal year or for the life of the franchise or whatever, and, you know, I've been involved in that. I've gotten sucked into the hype of that before. Sometimes good, sometimes bad, probably more often bad. But when a when a project gets killed in the middle, it's just it's heart wrenching. I mean, I I literally just I just took a bunch of time off whenever that happened because it happened to me a bunch of times. I just took the time off and I came back whenever I felt like it, and luckily still had a job. I mean, considering the hours that they have you guys work, I'm sure they would prefer you. To take the time off and come back refreshed. Or, oh no, 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 not at all. No. Okay, uh, no. I mean, maybe that's that's maybe that's a little too optimistic. <laughs> I, unfortunately, it is. I mean, the thing is that, and, and every place isn't like this. There are some places that are bright, shining stars of doing things right, but unfortunately, um, many times a project will be overscoped and underfunded, which basically means we got too much to do and not enough not enough bodies to do it so you're just going to work two to three times harder and these things happen because well it's not always this case but we're constantly trying to hit a deadline on new hardware with new software and it needs to be artistic and fun and beautiful and it has to be as perfect as it can be because there's so much pressure to get it finished for um, the company to turn it into revenue. I mean, it's, everything is just a complete loss until it starts generating cash. Um, and then sometimes there are so many things that are riding on top of that that if you miss your date, it's going to hurt the company even worse because like back in the old days, uh, you would buy end caps at a store. So you're like, oh, Target is, you know, we've bought the end caps on Target. It costs us this amount of money, but that product has to be in the store on this day because those end caps go away. And I know that, that that still happens, but back then it was a huge buy for us to do that. And, you know, missing those dates were horrible. But the cost was, for some people that I know, you know, to this day they still have PTSD and they don't want to work in computers at all. They're really? Just abs yeah. And that's and not one person. That's more, way more than one person that I know. And they're wow. Yeah. It's it's a mess. I mean, I was telling you about Steve and working at Origin. So while while he was working and I was getting to to um, to kind of get to know the company and be there all the time, he was working crazy hours. And then I started and I started doing my own version of crazy hours. But then he shipped his game. So Ultima Seven Part Two Serpent Isle shipped, and he came home. He sat down on the couch, you know, like you know used to do, watching TV, 
he kind of just sat there for a couple days. <laughs> and I was like, dude, what's up, man? And he's like, yeah, I'm all right. And, uh, and then a little while after that, he's still hanging out. And he, and he just goes, what did I used to do? <laughs> and I was like, holy shit. What did I used to do? What did I do? used to do? That really came out of his mouth. <laughs> and and it, wow. that was... It's, that moment is crystal clear, man. It's crystal clear. When you I, first felt that, do you when remember I, it? Whoa, no, I don't, because it happens so slowly. Really? Yeah, it's like your life got completely supplanted by this job, and so when I chip a game or if a game got killed, I start hanging out with my old friends again from before the industry that weren't living in the building with us sixteen hours a day. So I didn't see them. So as my projects got into more pressure, my time with my friends disappeared. Yeah. And so they became really hesitant to reattach to me because they were, they literally said, and this was when I was like, oh, I am in a boiling pot. And they're like, we just don't know when you're going to disappear again. I was like, whoa. And I'm still making games. I, I don't know what my problem <laughs> is. You know, I just it's... keep trying to fix this problem, but it just, you know. Is it just the nature? I mean, it's just the nature of. of it is unfortunately of the, of the, the nature. It's not just the gaming industry. Okay, it's I. I, I don't. Know. It's high. It's high pressure. It's anything that I. I think it's anything that's got a lot of money associated with it, and it's creative and has to do with technology, and of course there are other aspects of it. I mean, but it's like I mean if you're, if you're making a product that has to be done by Christmas, it's got to be in the stores by Thanksgiving and whatever. I don't care if you're making you know wooden hobby horses. But I mean, because that stuff's important, it's got to be get it's got to get done. But the particular um, chaos of trying to manage new technology—well, it's, like it's commercial like, art, yeah, really. I was gonna say it's, it's on new technology. To, to, I mean, if you think about a filming schedule for for a movie, I mean, especially games now have bigger budgets than movies get. Yep. And but you're you're dealing with the technological development alongside mm-hmm. it at the same time, you know. There's only so much time you also want to spend creating the game before new technology comes out and makes what you're doing obsolete. Oh, I, I can't even imagine what that was like there's so in much the stuff. 90s. Everybody was trying to make consoles. <laughs> and That's computers, right. too. And, and software to go on those things. Yeah. And, then, and even in the computers, you had um, people that were making add-ons. So, like, so Origin, when I got there, um, they had already developed a relationship with Sound Blaster. So Sound Blaster was an ex- extra sound card that you can put in your in your machine so it didn't just go beep boop, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. So um, the Sound Blaster um, actually could do voice synthesis and things like that. So Really? Yeah, so it did great MIDI and it could do voice synth. So we wound up um, shipping our main game and then, and which of course supported Sound Blaster and all the MIDI and Forgive me for anybody that knows better than I do, but this is just my memory of all this stuff. So, um, so we ship. We would ship the game with awesome music. I mean, we had some just incredibly talented sound composers at the time. I mean, these guys were just the absolutely top of their game. There's nothing, nothing else like what they were doing. Uh, then, after the game shipped, we would actually put together um, a mission pack at the end, and we would do voice uh, add-on stuff. So we would go and record voice and do whatever. Uh, and then sell that as an add-on pack. Oh, and okay. So, and you could, it wasn't DLC because it was, an, it was literally an extra package at the store. Um, but we did that for a number of reasons. One of those reasons was so that we would be able to retain our resources between our projects. So if you finished... One thing to 
consider when you look back in old school gaming is that we didn't have um, what would be the we didn't have direct X. Yeah. We didn't have any any pre-made anything. So when we would start a game, we would decide, you know, does it need sound? Okay. Do we have any sound libraries that we've done before? No. Okay. Well, we got to write new stuff for this new card. Okay. Well, do we have this? Do we have that? Do we have a memory optimizer? Do we have this? And the answer was generally no. Yeah. So we had to write everything. In fact, when we got to doing um, video on our games, there was no off-the-shelf video compression. We had to write our own video compressors. Jeez. So the stuff that we had to do, and we had to do that on PCs that were Frankenstein's. I mean, we had—I mean, we didn't know who had stuff in yeah. what. So we had an entire lab of people that were that they did nothing except build a machine, and we test the game on them on that build, and then they tear that down and rebuild it in a different way. Tear down, rebuild. Tear down, rebuild. Constantly. And fucking bless those guys' hearts because they did that constantly. And then we would release a new version of it, and then they have to retest it all again so that the box could say compatible with blah, 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 blah. I mean, those guys were workhorses. Yeah. But you, the perspective that you get when you look back and go, we had to ride our own video compressor uphill both ways in the snow. (laughs) You know, it's like that that type um, type of thought process has kind of disappeared over the years. Yeah. And I think in 2000 um, was the first time I really noticed it because we had uh, our, our technical director slash uh, head of programming was uh, old school. And then we had, you know, some younger hotshots that had only programmed in, what is it, MFC or something, Microsoft something or another, excuse me for not knowing. <laughs> but so they were programming in that. And then they encountered some weird bug that was like way underneath all of the windows, everything. And so, you know, Tony had to go in there and go, okay, what's the problem? And they're like, oh, blah, blah, blah. I don't have any idea what this means. And he's like, oh, that's a weird problem with the CMOS crap all the way at the middle of your machine. And so he goes, fixes it. And those guys were like, if you didn't, if you weren't here, this game would have just been dead. Because um, yeah. this, this, our entire PC world is like a house of cards built on a house of cards built on a house of cards built on a little transistor. Absolutely. And yeah, and this, the complications that go into all of that is just in, insane. Who were the other, the other publishers that were really big? Wow, that is a question that I am not even sure that I can or, totally answer. Or well. just even who who you guys? Oh, there's like Sierra. There was uh, ID. They yeah. had been they had done Doom and Castle Wolfenstein and those games that absolutely just anything that anything that started killing our productivity <laughs> is where I'm like going. Those were those guys were awesome. Um, but there's just God, there's just tons and tons and tons of places. Just, just to kind of give a frame of reference, you know, like what was coming out at the time. Um, when I started at Origin, we played uh, we played Castle Wolfenstein. Yeah. And we played it on a LAN, which was all programmed. I mean, all built into the to the um, to the building. And so we had lots of cubes. So we'd have four players versus four players, whatever. That's and so we had this the perfect environment. With the best network that you can get your hands on. So when Wolfenstein came out, oh my God. I, <laughs> we played so much Wolfenstein. It was absolutely 
insane. Um, and then uh, when Doom came out, we um, we had we just mastered the whole art of uh, being in a four person cube and playing together and yeah. all that stuff. And then they, then there were mods that came out for it that were all awesome too. So, we spent so much time playing multiplayer. And and the mods. So how did modding really work in earlier gaming? Somebody, I'm really not sure because I've I really only just started using mods personally in some of my games. Um, I usually just put, will play vanilla through, but mm -hmm. I had no idea until literally you said that that there was a modding community back in the nineties. To oh. be completely honest, <laughs> no, it's it's a fair fair question. So in the eighties, well, first of all, anybody's going to hack anybody's stuff that they can get their hands That's on, true. right? So if there's I mean, and if you put any sort of um, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just how it is, right? And um, and if games had like level editors inside of them, you know, people would, they could deconstruct the game and then reconstruct it. It just depended on how much time somebody had yeah. and how interested they were. Um, but also in the 80s, like on the Apple, we had games like uh, Pinball Construction Set on the C64. I played a lot of uh, Racing Construction Set. So it's like people build these engines that you could use to build more of their game. And I think conceptually that, uh, that resonated. So people that didn't make the game could figure out how to deconstruct the game and, and mess with it again. And some people would release their code so that somebody would accidentally find it and then be able to <laughs> manufacture stuff. Or, yeah. they'd, or they'd secretly answer questions for people. Here's how you can unpack that one file so that if you ever press this one button, it would actually reconfigure everything. Uh, so I don't know how much of the of the stuff that was on Doom was uh, completely, strictly legal or whatever, but <laughs> the people did total conversions. So wow. somehow or another, they built a level editor. Somehow or another, they figured out how to change textures, and somehow or another, they figured out how to do put audio in there, and they were basically straight up building their own games using, you know, Doom. It must be Cakewalk comparatively now, you know. Oh, my God, you know? what? <laughs> Yeah, right. those people. I mean, well, hell, for right now, just Unity is its own editor. It's 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 it's, it's a better editor than anything I've ever seen in anything on any specific game. I, so that, then it's just a matter of content. Can you create good content? That reminds me. I, I watched recent recently, and when I say recently, I mean within maybe the last year and a half. There was a streamer that's pretty popular, and I do not know his name off the top of my head, but. Um, he exploited um, a known way to inject code into. Super Mario Brothers three. It, oh, which one was it? It's one of the one of the Super Mario Brothers games um, that was on the Super Nintendo, and literally injecting code line by line mm -hmm. through the game through yep. through specific actions. You know, and he, it probably the, the whole video is probably forty five minutes or so. But he mm -hmm. injects the code to make the game a Mario Flappy Bird on on a cartridge. And it was, wow, that's it was just amazing to me to, to watch. Um, I mean, and of course, he, this was probably the product of many, 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 many tries because you have to get oh, it right the think? first time, you know, yeah. absolutely. But it was, it was just absolutely mind-blowing to me that, I mean, that those exploits exist to be able to do something like that. Do they kind of put out the source code for more games for the modding community now, would you think? Or? Ooh, um, Cause I would say that if it's a giant corporation, they're not going to give away their source code for anything. Like Bethesda has, is really big about mods, but they're also pretty controversial in, in terms of, of monetizing mods. Wow, um, that's a really good question. I don't, <laughs> I don't 
Well, I, I will say this, that I don't know too much about the modding community right yeah. now. Okay, yeah. I'll, just, I'll be completely honest about it. <laughs> That's all right, and I'm sure that there, uh, there's, there has to be more people modding things in more ways than I can possibly even imagine, yeah. really injecting code into a SNES game. Why now not? in 20, 2016. Right, why not? You know? <laughs> but um, even when we were playing Doom, somebody had modded it. Uh, one group had modded it so that it would play, uh, so you were in the Death Star. So there's a Star what? Wars mod, and then somebody had modded it to be Aliens. And it was like straight up with the sound effects from the movie. What? And, yeah, what? And it was awesome. So you have Apone going, check those corners. And it's like and the radar is going, do, 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 all oh that stuff. Oh, my gosh. It was, the, that was, I have to admit, that right there was one of the, when my friends and I all at Origin four-playered our way all the way through the Aliens mod for Doom was one of the greatest gaming moments, like, ever. That's Just amazing. Just straight up. Oh yeah, scary as fuck. I mean, I don't know who, <laughs> I don't know who managed to pull that thing off, but it was just amazing. And who knows? I mean, it could have been even people that worked at it or people that used to work at it. I don't really know who did it. I didn't care. But that thing disappeared fast. That thing went away. It was hard. It was hard to get your hands on. Really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, because I, can I mean, imagine. think about it. Because even then, the getting your hands on it was like, what are you on? Like a rec arts whatever the hell, mm-hmm. you know, message board somewhere. I mean, the. the the net was pretty freaky back then. Pretty questionable methods. Questionable everything. And in fact, we, it, that became one of the things that we would wind up trying to fight against at Origin because some motherfucker would always <laughs> release our game bef- to the internet before it was finished. Really? Yes. We had people that were working in QA or CS or maybe it was somebody in our office. Could have been disgruntled, could not given a shit. Could have gotten paid for it, whatever, or maybe it was just a, a like game of buzz. Releasing the source code for the game, they or? would release anything they could get their hands on. They wow. would release these partial builds. Um, I don't know how much source code ever got out, but I do know that there were builds out, and you could buy copies of our game on the street before we were even finished with it. That's crazy. Yeah, it was crazy, and it really and it, at the time we thought it was it. hurting us. Oh, you know, we yeah. were like everybody was like convinced it was hurting us. But there's nothing you can really do about that except, like, try to completely lock everything down. And if you do that, you're going to stifle all the creativity in the building, and it's just going to suck all the fun out of it. Yeah. So it was just something we lived with as a risk, and it was it was something that we, it, took, it took a bite out of things. But I think in the long run, you know, my take on piracy is that if somebody is going to pirate your game, they were never going to pay for it. Yeah. And, and I even I refer back even to my childhood of playing on an Apple II, the guy that owned the one that I was playing on was a uh, a guy I was working for. I worked in exchange for hours on his computer. Mm-hmm. And he had friends come over and they would just have copy parties. And a copy party, if you've never heard of one of those. Yeah, yeah. You've heard of one of those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so everybody shows up with their giant binders of discs. And this game was hacked by Doc Ock or whatever, and that's kind of like the, I don't know if you'd call it the original freaking uh, DLC, but I mean, people would hack it, and the damn game would have the guy, the hacker's name on it when it opened up, and you're like, what? But those people never played those games. Yeah. They just copied them all the damn time. I mean, maybe they played them, but the guy, the guy that I played all the hack games on, all of his things... He never paid for them. He never played them. Never anything, those those games. So there was really nothing lost. I, I think if you look at it, the, the the what you lose is probably negligible. Yeah. If people are gonna pay for something and play it, they're gonna they're gonna do it. And and honestly, I mean if 
I think I, I, for me, if I have the chance to play a, you know, some early build of a game and I enjoy it because, mm -hmm. you know, just by stumbling across it online and I see that the game is releasing in its full form, I mean, I'm probably going to buy it because I would want to Yeah, you had a taste of it. You game. enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, especially considering knowing that what I was playing probably could, you know, probably was not close to what the final build ended up being. Right. Um, how, how long did you work in Austin before you moved to the UK for? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I was... In, at Origin, I started like in November '92, and it was summer of '94 when I went over to uh, the UK office oh, wow. to work on rugby. And, and how I was long? there for three months. Three months. Yeah, three months of a lot of very, very long days. I believe it. Did you even get to enjoy the UK at all? <laughs> yeah, I did actually. Yeah. I, I I became really good friends with the people that I worked with. That that was, the experience was amazing. I would never change anything about it for in a million years. Um, but yeah, I got to go to Stonehenge and Manchester and see a whole bunch of really cool stuff. Um, was the environment, like the working environment, any different overseas than it was here? Yeah, um, there were some pretty stark differences. Number one was that uh, we didn't have air conditioning. <laughs> there was air what? conditioning in the front office, and then the rest of us were in the back with no AC, and it was uh, humid and hot. And so at sometimes completely friggin' unbearable. And on top of that, they had a, uh, it was, it was non-smoking except for a smoking room that they had that had like plastic plexiglass walls that you had to go sit in and smoke in that one room. Uh, so it was re it was really unbelievably a uncomfortable. Lot <laughs> a lot of people smoked. Um, but thankfully there was that, there was that room, but there were laws against it being a certain temperature in your office. And we were way beyond anything that was legal. I mean, yeah. we were like, it was 90, I, I think it translated to 95, and I think the law said 85. And we were just like, yeah, it's raining outside, it's hot as hell, you guys all stink, but we're going to finish this game. Yeah. So we would, um, we'd get there in the morning, and we'd all go to lunch and all get drunk, <laughs> and then we'd come back and work our asses off, and then we'd go to dinner and all get drunk, and then come back and work our asses off again wow. until about 2 or something in the morning, and then it would just repeat seven days a week for close to three months. Wow. It was just stupid. Just stupid. I mean, I loved every second of it. I was working with really smart people doing really cool shit. But um, there was a deadline, and we wanted to hit it, and we did. But uh, it was, it was pretty stupid. Was that your only project you worked on overseas? Yeah, I got um, I got asked to work on a uh, work on a game while I was there, uh, and I would have killed for it. They were um, they were going to make a queen game. What? What? Like like and the queen of yeah, England? Yeah, no, queen like the the, the only queen. <laughs> Just making this sure. Person you were in charge the UK, of this country. So. Yeah, so it was going to be a queen game, and I was like, yeah, I'll do anything to stay here for this thing. And it went into this weird limbo. Um, after I mean, I said no. And, game uh, purgatory. Yeah, I mean, it it, it came out actually. Oh. It turned it turned out that they wound up and made it, but. Um, I wasn't involved with it, so I've been so upset about that and crying that I've not even <laughs> bothered trying to play the thing because I know it'll just break my heart. 
But anyway, so while, and I also got asked um, by, oh, so Chris Roberts, who was the guy that did Wing Commander, his brother Aaron uh, was working on a version of Privateer, you know, a, well, a Privateer-like game in, um, in Manchester. And so Aaron asked me if I would, you know, come work on it with him. And I was like, I don't know, man, you're going to work me to death. I've already exhausted like crazy. And plus this is England and it's freezing cold and rainy and ugh. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I was, I was really honored that he had asked. Yeah. Um, but I wound up and went back to, went back to, to Austin and, uh, wound up working as the lead designer on the last wing commander. Wow. While they were finishing the privateer game, um, and we were trying to figure out how to how to make all how to combine all that stuff and make our universes into one. Because at the very end of finishing um, his game, uh, EA decided to brand it as Privateer Two, and it was like, but this isn't in the Privateer universe or the Wing Commander universe. They're like, it'll sell better. And that's what Did happened. It? Uh, probably, <laughs> but it, it didn't, I don't think it did long-term, uh, good to the brand. Yeah. Especially. No offense to anybody that worked on Privateer 2 or anything around it. It's just, I mean, this is just a, the ramblings of one person. <laughs> I mean, but there, there's something to be said about, I mean, injecting a game into it. I mean, I think I would be upset if I had a game, a series of games that I really enjoyed playing mm-hmm. that had connecting stories or a connecting universe and I was told that a game is a part of that universe but really yeah. is virtually not at all. I mean it Right. You're I mean, looking, Aaron you're looking, made this game you're to looking have for nothing the, to do with, with yeah. Wing Commander. And you're and you're like, looking for the connections. You're like, oh well I mean obviously mm-hmm. so I mean it you said it was like kind of a last minute yeah, the guys had finished the game just about. I mean and they were in the last the last stretch of things in the marketing department decided no, it's a space game. Let's just name it after the other thing. It'll make better sense wow. and it'll sell better. And I was just like, whoa, couldn't you guys have just done that from the very beginning? Just say, no, we're marketing. This is what it's going to be. And just done with it. Yeah. But they didn't. And I and I ultimately think that was a mistake. I mean, I really think it was a mistake. There's nothing wrong with having a company that does two different space games. I'm sorry. It's okay to do two different space games. I agree. You know, just like you can do different role-playing games. I think that's totally fine, too. Do you think that there was some fear after what they call the great North American video game crash of the 80s? Do you think there was a lot of fear about... Um, Not by those guys oh, at no. that point in time, no. The, I wasn't sure. No, the industry had uh, made a lot of changes, I think, by then, and so had Electronic Arts. There was... Um, so, like, right... Um, trying to see if I've got the time right, but whenever... There were, uh, this was the 3DO and the Jaguar and the Saturn and all these different game systems that were coming out. Um, the larger publishers were busy trying to, um, trying to protect their revenue and trying to protect, you know, what they're spending their, you know, their, their profits on. So, uh, there was a thought process of what is it you're going to, where, where are you going to put all of your bets? And it's like, you know, are you going to try to cover all these different game systems with every single game that you do? Or are you just going to do a couple of games? And there was also this other uh, other issue going on where there, EA had a lot of different titles. Um, and one might be on PC, one might be on that system, one might be on that system or whatever. And so when they went in to sell games to the market, the channel, the wholesalers, um, you know, EA had this giant 
Are you familiar with Fuller Brush? Like this old company that would come to this door and try to sell you a bunch of brushes? Uh uh-uh. And so it's like, you know, Fuller Brush had a million brushes. You had the hair brush and the finger brush and this brush and whatever. <laughs> so they had all these different brushes. And people were like, I just need one brush, dude, seriously. And so what EA had was this giant, you know, arsenal of different games, all sorts of different things, different, different topics, blah, blah, blah. And um, so they came to the wholesaler with all these different cool things, lots of new titles. And uh, the wholesalers would say, no, I only want that one brush that I always wanted, the yeah. one that sold before and does, does well. And so they were having problems pushing the rest of their game. So what they wound up doing was um, they started this, I don't know what it's called, 4-wide, 3-D, 4-wide, whatever the hell it was, strategy. And the idea was we're going to do, we're going to reduce the number of titles and we're going to increase the number of game systems that we support per title. Okay. So, so I mean, it makes yeah, sense, you know, absolutely. when you look at it. But when you were when you were working at a company that had, let's say, I'm going to make up this number, 50 different intellectual properties, each of which are significantly different enough to be their own thing. It's like, well, what decision do you think they made? Kill everything that doesn't make a lot of money. So it was like, uh, sorry, zap, 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 yeah. you ding, you know, you're going to get, you know, I mean, no offense to John Madden team, they're amazing. They, they made EA what it is with the money that they, they generated. But it's like, Madden football is going to be on everything. Yeah. You know, and that, and that's what it was because that was the powerhouse. And, and, and that was pretty unheard of for companies to do at the time, I'm assuming, right? Like like cross-platform releases? At, well, actually. Or what, or did you, were you starting to see more companies do that? Well, it was already time? happening. Yeah. I mean, like we, I don't say we, but the game industry has always tried to milk as much money out of any title as it possibly can. So yeah. it's like, you know, this game came out on this system, so port it over here, port it over here. Uh, Tetris is like the most licensed game of all time, or whatever, and so is Wheel of Fortune. So like, Hubert. <laughs> yeah, if your yeah if your system doesn't have a port of one of those games on it, it's not even a system, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, there's been a lot of that, but the trying to finish all of the games at the same time, you know, launch across the different um, all the different systems. So did you have that got to be pretty crazy? Did you have separate teams for each console, or did, was did you need to? Yes and no, and the the answer is that you always had to have at least one person working on a different platform. So you like you might have the main team, let's say, working on the PC version. You had one person that's always making sure it works on a Mac. Of course, never is that simple, but I mean that's sort of just conceptually what it is. And then sometimes you'd fin- you'd have to wait till you finished a game before you started porting it to another system. Wow. But um, yeah, so we did like the. Wing Commander got ported to a whole bunch of different things. But when you're trying to work on something that's like a concurrent thing on two or three different systems, um, it's a it's a bit of a nightmare. But you, you try to make progress like at the same time all the time. But there's almost always going to be one that's like the lead. They always call it the lead skew, SKU, yeah. stock keeping unit, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, which one's the lead skew? It's like, oh, the PC ones. Okay, so let's make sure there's enough money in the PC one and make sure that the the communication is flowing towards the Mac one or to the PS version or whatever the heck it is. Okay. Yep. Wow. I'm like, there's there's all these areas of conversation I didn't even anticipate us well, I just, <laughs> going. It goes on and on and on. And I've just been doing this for so long that I, I've seen it from a lot of different angles. How, uh, how long did you stay at, at EA for? I was there for about six years okay. or so. Um. So... I got an offer I couldn't refuse. Yeah? 
Where at? Oh, it was a local company that ultimately shut down, which broke my heart and Aww. tore me to, to pieces. Yeah. Um, but it really, it was an offer I couldn't refuse. Um, I was getting married, and we wound up getting pregnant while I was working there. And yeah. just all sorts of really wonderful things came out of it. But, um, you know, the 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 way back machine when you look back if i'd have stayed at ea for another six months i would have paid off my house really the stock price went crazy but um i did what i did the right thing for myself at the right time um i had just finished my last project so i wasn't like attached to something what i was never your last project the last there? the last one that i really did was wing commander prophecy yeah. we were starting another we we're starting another project but it didn't get off the ground and so I was like, well, if you're not committed to me and I'm not committed to you and I have this other offer and you're not willing to match it, I'm sorry. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've got to go follow, you know, i got to get out of here. I can't wait for you to die. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And so what did you work on? Uh, oh, at the other company, we did a, we were doing a uh, real-time 3D um, top-down squad-based strategy game. Okay. It was like everything all at the same time. It was like freaking awesome. <laughs> so um, we were pushing everything that we could as far as uh, uh, graphics quality. We were, do we were doing blended motions. We were, um, man, just the, the stuff that we were doing on it was absolutely insane. So we did a motion capture shoot, and we could blend all the different motions between the moves. I made sure that when we shot it, there was no feet sliding on the ground, so everybody looked like they were absolutely perfect. I recorded every little different thing. Yeah. Set uh, set a new standard at the animation the the um, the mocap facility for how you know motion capture shoots ought to be done. So it's like we did all this really 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 amazing stuff, and it all just went in the crapper because the guy that ran the company. Um, decided to shut down and sell out to the parent that had given him a bunch of money. So he, he, he did well and we all had to so did you you know, lose hit the your road. Job? Oh yeah. We, the whole company shut down. How long after you left EA was that? Uh, God, two years, I that's, think. Oh wow. I worked on that game for a long time. I think I mean, it is. I mean, I could, I, mean, I could have it wrong, but I mean, that's what I recall it being. I mean, considering what you guys were doing, I mean, I didn't motion capture is something I, I'm surprised that you guys were using at that time. Oh, we were using motion capture at Origin on uh, this game called Bioforge, which is like a precursor to a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah. But yeah, so we had what was called a flock of birds, and it was like a radio-controlled um, motion capture suit that we were using in the cafeteria because it had the least wires and stuff around it. And uh, those guys hobbled together some pretty decent stuff. Like, right now, you'd be like, I could make something better than that in the garage. It's like, but... <laughs> You couldn't back then. Yeah. It was literally like cutting-edge state-of-the-art at the time. Absolutely. But, yeah, so we I'd had experience with motion capture from the mid-'90s, I guess. And then uh, in 2000 or so, was it 2099, 2000? That's when we shot the stuff for uh, for Crimson Order. And, uh, yeah, and then we had, like, uh, multi-level... Um, blending, so it's like we had we could make your feet do one thing and your torso do another thing and your head do another thing. So we had broken all this stuff out. I mean, we're working with Ruben Garza and Mike Privet. These guys are just amazing genius um, programmers and artists. And uh, we could we could take a character and make it so they would uh, look like they were just standing still. We could make them go from like a stand to a run and all this stuff. And then we could actually throw another animation on top of that person 
so that it looked like that person had gotten hit by um, you know, a rocket. Or if the person was standing still, we could shake the ground and we would apply a shake animation onto it. So no matter what position they were in, they would actually move. Yeah. And it was absolutely amazing. And this is like years before anybody else was doing this stuff. So we were like on this cool, really badass edge. And then the band broke up. Wow. Yeah, so I was really excited about that project. And so what happened after that? Uh, that's when I got a job with uh, some of my buddies that were working on a SpongeBob game and a Jimmy Neutron game. They were just getting the... Which just ones? getting this. It was SpongeBob uh, Revenge of the Flying Dutchman. Which Jimmy Neutron game? Was uh, it a Jimmy PC Neutron game? Boy Genius. It wasn't. It was a movie tie-in with yeah. the movie Boy Genius. I actually played both of those games. I played oh, yeah. Flying Dutchman on PS2. <laughs> yep. And then I played Jimmy Neutron on PC. And I... I was pretty young. I mean, I well, was... Jimmy Trump was. We did the uh, PlayStation Two version and the oh. and the GameCube version say, of played, both of those. Or I played a Jimmy Neutron game on PC. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I, I have to was. admit that although the team just killed themselves yeah. on the movie game, they were hamstrung by like a million things. Um, so I'll say this: I think the game was as good as it could possibly be. Yeah. And that's ultimately the only thing that history will ever recall. And that's just the way that it is with every damn thing. It's mm -hmm. like, well, whatever it was when it came out is what it was. And people will blame a team. But these guys were working uh, against so many different odds. They were using the game engine in a way that it wasn't supposed to be used. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, and we were doing things that were beyond what it was supposed to be. Um, our parent company, Callisto from France, went bankrupt. So they were the ones that were supporting the game engine, and we were both of us were using it in different ways that were ways it wasn't supposed to be. And we didn't even find out that they had gone, uh, well, this wasn't when they had gone bankrupt yet. We called them in August, and they weren't there. We're like, where are you guys? And it turns out that all of France takes a vacation in, in August. So it's like, <laughs> we're like, where are you guys? And so finally, um, then that time frame got over with, and then they went bankrupt. So they quit supporting the engine. So we had to support the engine. Wow. So we had to, yeah. So God, it was just a friggin' nightmare. Um, and you didn't even get your August vacation for how? Yeah, I know. I, what was I supposed to do? <laughs> but yeah, so that happened. Oh, and the and the thing that really just hamstrung Jimmy Neutron, as I recall, was they never got the script. They the Nickelodeon would not send them what's in the movie. What? We were making this game... For the movie. For the movie with no idea of what was in the movie. Oh, my gosh. And, and I'm I'm painting it with a, a bunch of memories that are vague and all over, but I know that team would tell you the same thing. They're like, well, we don't know what the hell is going to be in this thing. So they, they did the best they could. And, you know, I think that's part of the... When you play a game, you're like, why the hell is this like this? And this game doesn't make any <laughs> sense. You're like going, probably because no one told them anything and the communications sucked. Yeah. Well, SpongeBob game was really fun. I played a lot of SpongeBob games. So we mur sure. we murdered ourselves for that game. We bled and bled and bled. And in fact, and, and you'll probably appreciate this. I hope um, when the as we were approaching the end of the game, um, THQ was our publisher. So good old um, THQ. Good old THQ. <laughs> um, so we were making we were making our milestones. Um, but they kept asking for more and more and more, and then they didn't want to pay us when we turned the milestones in, but they always would. And then finally, and they were frustrated with how long it was taking us to get the thing done. We were behind schedule. We were 
overburdened, yada, 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 all totally realistic. But we were owning up to our side of the bargain, which was we were working people like dogs. Yeah. We were working ourselves like dogs to finish this thing, not being compensated in any way for what we should have been doing. And, you know, the screws just kept getting tighter and tighter. And um, eventually, THQ just said, you know what? We've sent you all the money you're going to get. You know, you're going to finish it or else. And so we, uh, the by this time, when Callisto had gone bankrupt, we, the five of us, had decided to become owners of the place and take over the contracts and all that, which, of course, was another problem that got involved in the whole deal. But um, we... The managers, owners, all got in a room, and it was like, what the fuck are we going to do? Yeah. And my answer was, what we're going to do is we're going to tell everybody the truth. We're going to say we've got this much money, and we're going to ask everybody if they want to finish it or not finish it. Because I'd already been through the not finishing it. Multiple times. Too many point. times. Yeah, at that point. And it, and just, like, it just breaks your heart. And I'm like, look, if we go to everybody and we tell them this is how much money we have and come up with a, and, and tell them that we believe we can finish this game, we can all get it on our resumes and it'll be out there and our time won't have been wasted. I'm like going, if we get into that room and everybody can agree that we can do it, then we do it. And if they say we can't, then we can't. But we have to tell everybody the truth, yeah. the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so we did exactly that, went into the room and I explained to them how much money we had in the bank, what's going on, what THQ had said, how the milestones have been going on. And I was like, and it's really up to you guys. So, you know, I threw out a bunch of options like, you know, we can uh, keep you on full time if you're needed. We could, you know, take you off the books unless you're needed. And then we pay you for whatever your rate would be hourly. Um, you can hang out here and you can, you know, work for free if you want to. Or you can work on your own stuff. You can use your own equipment. And we're like, look, I, we don't even care. I, I just want to know, do you guys think we can do it? And so um, the team says, yes, we know we can do it. Everybody knew that we were all going to wind up losing our jobs at the end of it anyway. Yeah. So everybody just said, this is what I can do. This is what I can do it for. This is what I can commit to. And we finished both of the games. Wow. And, I mean, we finished with $1,200 left in the bank account. Oh. Yeah. And that's after selling all of the equipment to the employees and everything. It was like 1200 bucks was left over. Am I remembering? I think we had beer. <laughs> a lot of beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm not sure if I'm remembering correctly, but you guys won an award for that game too, right? Yeah, it won the uh, Nash, it won the Sponge, what was it, excuse me, the Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Award for the year. Well, there, there was you go. Mario Kart and Spider-Man against us. I mean, it's really? a Nickelo it was a Nickelodeon game, don't get me wrong. I well, mean, yeah. they had their finger on the scale to some degree, but it, it beat out, yeah, Mario It was Mario a good game. Party I, play, I played Mario the Party. shit out of that game when I was I loved that game. That was, that was, Probably like the most fun game for the longest time that I worked on. Very frustrating to have Was so it? many little bugs and shit drive you crazy and to have worked like a dog on it, but I loved that game. What was it like working with a like a company like Nickelodeon? I mean, did they have their hand in it very wow. much? Or? Yeah, they did to some degree. Um, we had a... Uh, the team, before I got there, had basically decided that they were going to make this game and they pitched their game engine, the team and everything to uh, Nickelodeon and they had agreed to get us to start this thing. So when I got there, I had to kind of learn the, I had to learn what SpongeBob was. I had to learn all <laughs> this stuff. I mean, I didn't know anything. And we got, as we got further into development, um, 
THQ and Nickelodeon wanted to get more and more, um, I don't want to say micromanaging, but they got really concerned about like the look and feel of the characters. So, you know, we were, we had drawn SpongeBob in 3d and we were like, tried to watch the shows to figure out what is it, what SpongeBob supposed to look like. Cause there's like all of the holes mean something and there are different places and all this stuff. And there, we didn't have any consistent material. So I asked them if they would send us all their books. And so they sent us like huge, co- yeah, everything. So it's like all the character studies, right? So you've seen a character sheet. It's like, what mm-hmm. does he look like from the front side? And then finally, um, we had them send us a SpongeBob maquette so we can actually get the friggin' holes right. So we we spent a lot of time t- trying to trying to do that. And then somewhere during the time, um, we fa- Steve Hillenberg, the guy that created SpongeBob, uh, his it turned out his wife had uh, been diagnosed with cancer. Oh, wow. So he quit messing with SpongeBob and went off to go take care of his wife. I don't know whatever happened after that, but that happened during our um, during that experience. So. Uh, we didn't have a whole lot to do with Nickelodeon after that. And I mean, that wasn't like a defining characteristic, but I don't, I don't yeah. recall too much because everything gets really blurry because we started killing ourselves to, to finish. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Nickelodeon and thinking about THQ and the SpongeBob experience, it reminds me of uh, one of the things that you probably would never have thought about. But since you played the game, the theme song is on it, right? Yeah. Well, it's not the original theme song. It sounds just like it. Except that we were going to use the original theme song, but licensing it inside of Nickelodeon was more expensive than re-recording it. Really? So we re-recorded the SpongeBob theme song for that game because it would save money. And I think he even, I think instead of going, oh, who lives in a, I think yeah. he goes, ooh. And so you listen to you're like, well, it is different because the guy read the O differently. Yeah. But it's like, that was the cheaper thing to do. So that, it's weird when you're with a giant company like Nickelodeon, the recording right, I mean, everything having to do with music rights is all messed up. I mean, I was in music for a long time. And so it's like, who has the publishing rights, who has the mechanical rights, who has the this rights, who has that rights. So whoever had the mechanicals, which is like the actual recording of it, writes, was asking for too much money. So it was like, we'll just go re-record it. Yeah, definitely. So THQ was part of the re-record decision. And then uh, the the producer at THQ uh, was trying to negotiate with the voice out, the voice talent. Um, and they were they asked for rate or whatever their regular rate was. And he was like, yeah, I'm not going to pay for that. I'm just going to go get sound likes. You know, and they'll charge this much. And they're like, okay, well, we'll do it for that much. I'm like, really? I'm like, yeah, and I feel horrible about that. I'm like, and it wasn't my decision. I'm like, going, really? These guys are the freaking talent, man. Pay them. You're a big company going to make big money on this thing. But no, man, these people are just as as tight as they can be with every penny. (laughs) It's horrible. I mean, if THQ isn't around, I mean, whatever. and And I feel bad for it, but it's like, Dude, people are just trying to squeeze every penny out everywhere they can go. And yeah. I mean, it's everywhere. But I, you know, Not just games, but I mean, yeah. It makes you wonder, though, because THQ, and this is just a completely side point, but like THQ, it seems, did a lot with, like they were a publisher, and they mm-hmm. were, it seems like they worked with a lot of 
Um, it's like networks. I mean, if they were do- they they went bankrupt while making a South Park game. They, oh, they, you mean they, that they license a lot? Of yeah, stuff. yeah, they license. No, I mean on top licensing of... titles is a very it's a very valid business model. It seems like it could be lucrative, but yeah. Well, I mean, you've got to yeah, you're paying licensing fees. You're hoping that the the license still has value by the yeah. time the game gets done. There's a million things that goes with it, but what it buys you is at least at the time. It bought you a way in for that wholesaler to purchase your thing, which yeah. kind of really is a point, a part of the game industry that I'm not sure if you're as familiar with. No, not really. It's like before digital downloads, right? You had to have so you were a developer and you would work for a publisher. And the way the model worked is the publisher would lend you money mm-hmm. to make it, just like the music industry. And then whenever you made that thing, you had gotten paid to work on it. But if the game made X amount of money, then you'd start getting royalties. Which was just, it's like a joke, you know, at thinking about it at that time. Anyway, so, so while you've made this deal hoping that you've made a great deal and you're going to make some royalties, then the publisher has to print copies and they have to sell copies into the wholesalers who sell them to the retailers who sell them to the customers. You get all these middlemen in the middle, right? So, I mean, fans know what the games are. This guy that's in wholesale... They don't know. They're just guessing. And so they, they don't have any idea if there's a real buzz for something, if something's going to be any good. They're like going, well, I'm going to guess that because it's this title and that title, and things that would raise it or lower it was, what are the hot button hot bullet points right now? Is it multiplayer? Is it land-based? Or is it, you know, it says Star Wars on it. And so all of these different factors would determine how many units that they would purchase. So really, you weren't selling to a customer. You were selling to a wholesaler. Oh, I mean, that makes, yeah, okay. Isn't that messed up? But that's what it was. There's so many, there's so many channels <laughs> that need to be traversed before, I guess, I got in front of me as a child in the 90s. <laughs> well, another thing is like, if you, just you know, in general, you well, know? when I was making Super Nintendo titles, everything was about um, how do you get through manufacturing? Because the cartridges were manufactured by Nintendo. And there wasn't, like, plants all over the world. You know, you didn't just go print it at the local 7-Eleven or, sorry, the local Kinko's or whatever. What you had to do was you would submit your build, Nintendo would play it, and if they determined that it didn't have any problems, then it would proceed on to the, the wow. uh, get in line to, to get your games printed. So if a game that was bigger than you, let's say a giant John Madden was going to get printed by Nintendo and your game is this little teeny tiny thing that's holding up the system, they might just happen to find a little bug in your game and kick it off the line so that the John Madden can go in front of you. So I guess the the development of the universal like CD format was probably just an insane transition to make if that's the case. Oh, I mean, when when you went from well, so the other part of yes, and that kind of goes with what I'm saying. So that like on if you're making a Nintendo game, it has to go into the Nintendo production line, and then every every chip that goes inside that card had a certain or inside the cartridge had a certain cost, and you wound up paying you paid Nintendo close to thirty dollars sometimes for a cartridge just to put your stuff on it. Wow. So that's we're eating that, and we had to pay for that before they would start manufacturing. So you had to come up with per, all... Uh-huh. Per cartridge? It could, be, it could be 20 to 40 or something. Oh, my god! If you had stuff like the FX chip in there and a save game and multiple ROMs, oh. I mean, that stuff got so expensive. And so you're making this game 
that goes on top of your your money has to come out of the top of that thing. So it's like if you paid, let's say, twenty just to make it a nice round number. Yeah, you have thirty or twenty to make it a nice round number, and then you your development cost average comes out to five dollars on top of all those things. I mean, you're thirty dollars now. You're now you got to make profit on top of that. I mean, wow. so and you bought like let's say that you think, oh, I'm going to sell a hundred thousand of yeah. this copy of this game. Well, you've got to a pay for a hundred thousand of those games to get made, and you better damn sure hope you sell every one of those things, because you're buying those cartridges. And remember that only tiny bit of it on there's development. Make so it's like you had to guess. I can't. That's that's crazy though. I didn't realize that oh, all yeah. those chips. Yeah, you have to think of it as uh, I mean, it's the stu- the business term is this cost of goods. Yeah. So it's like, what does it cost to manufacture something? How much is a box? How much is the cartridge? How much do you have to pay? To have the thing manufactured, um, and when it and when you start looking at going from uh, cartridges to um, CDs, which was a, a question you had brought up yeah, before, yeah. Mm-hmm. so the cost of goods dramatically lowered. I mean, just ridiculous. I mean, printing a printing a CD doesn't cost anything, but to have because but Sony and um, Xbox, Sony and Microsoft. They ran their own copy protection, so they still had to print the CDs. Oh, okay. So I think I think that it was like seven dollars a disc. Okay. With I know which is like oh sure it's like seven dollars a disc, but they they created the platform. They create you know they did they built the hardware. They built the distribution system. They did all that stuff. So it's like basically you're kind of paying to get into the the club. Yeah. Right. So it's like you know that was but your that's your cost of entry. I mean, you're not having to pay for all the individual chips that 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 provide different. And it's a lot faster to yeah. print to generate CDs than it is cartridges. Yeah, I, I so it's imagine. like yeah. So there and there there were multiple CD production facilities, and that just that whole changing away from cart uh, cartridges to CDs was an enormous enormous change. You could sell a hell of a lot more stuff faster, and you didn't have to have as much inventory, and your cost of goods were lower, and blah blah blah. Yeah, that's, I can't, I mean, I can't even imagine kind of being involved in an industry that was going, I mean, I feel like there's just so much change that's taken place in a short period of time for the industry. Yeah, I mean, even, I mean, thinking about, you know, the the hardware cartridges, the, the software um, CDs, and then scrolling back to making games that were on floppy disks. <laughs> yeah. Every floppy disk cost you, I, I'm, I'm going to say it was 40 cents or whatever. Maybe it's fifty cents, but you might make ten, fifteen dollars at retail for that thing. So if you're pulling a strike commander where you've got thirteen floppies in there, that is a significant cost of goods. So the value, if you were going to sell a hundred thousand or five hundred thousand of that of one of those discs, was enormous. Yeah. So remember how I told you that we had to write everything? We were writing our own compression algorithms because yeah. there was there was no zip. In any of that stuff, <laughs> so we were like, we wrote a compression algorithm, and then when you would put it on your put it install on your machine, then it would all uncompress. And nowadays, you're like going, duh, compression. It's like no, but back the then time... it didn't exist. Whoever had the best compression routines, you know, kept the money. And so, how did you stay with that company that you uh, that you were? Oh, then we finished the SpongeBob. Things? Yeah. Oh, um, when because... when the company shut down, that was that was the end of that. Wow. So, I mean, it's on to the next thing. It's a pretty, it's a pretty consistent trend, just in general, I guess, at the time, right? Like, uh, 
I mean, a lot of small ride, ride or get in, ride something, do something cool, and then it shuts down. Yeah, it's almost yeah. as if it, they they pretty much were contracts. <laughs> no, that's what that's all they are. Yeah, let's. I mean, let's not fool ourselves. This is not a career; it's a series of interconnected jobs. I think somebody said that earlier. Today I did. Too. I'll say it every day. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I heard that. I heard. Yeah, you heard, heard me that saying it. That's for earlier. sure. Yeah. But I know you were talking to a guy, and he, and I'm pretty sure he said the same thing. I'm not. Sure oh yeah, both. Of, yeah, I mean, I've run into industry people all the time, and, and, and obviously, he, and he was like, "I'm just tired of chasing the contracts." Oh yeah, I remember who that was. I yeah. don't want to call him out or anything, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I've run a contract studio. I know exactly what that's like. It's absolutely just murderous, you know. And then you're you're competing against everybody else that is really really good too, and then you compete on price, and then since you compete on price, ultimately, who's going to suffer? going to yeah. be the employees of the place mm-hmm. so it's just all about undercutting each other's until you can't stand it anymore and or you're the one that somebody else undercuts and now you have to fire everybody well so what was your path after that you know working on so after i did those games that's um i actually started a contract studio and oh, we really? wound up we served that's a, a lot segue. of well yeah <laughs> but we served a lot of really big companies a lot of big games um you know helped out with our friends I've made tons and tons of contacts mm-hmm. through doing that and have and I've worked on hundreds of games because you just you do a little bit here and a little bit there. So I had the opportunity of seeing the inside and behind the doors of uh a lot of companies with a lot of great cultures mm-hmm. and bad cultures and toxic stuff. So I I had a um a lot of visibility into the way that the industry works and um, kind of seeing it from the bottom to the top and then back down to the middle. Um, it's it's ruthless. Yeah. If you had to call out companies for having a good workplace culture at the <laughs> time, at the time. I don't know. I mean, I, I loved... Okay, so even when I was working a zillion hours at Origin and the EA, I loved every second of it. Yeah. So if, if even looking back on it, the only thing that sucks is that I just didn't have a life anymore. I mean, yeah. I... I was the, I, but I was the prototypical single person that didn't have anything else better to do. Bachelor game designer. Basically, I guess. <laughs> I mean, really, what are your, what are your options if you're going to be living at your company? Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, I, but because I was that way, um, I, I just, lo- I loved what I did, and I loved the people that I did it with, and the people that ran the studio just were freaking magicians that could make things cool all the time and they gave us just enough money to make it fun and they let us spend it however we wanted to um and uh they always threw killer parties and did lots of (laughs) i mean they they gave us really good rewards they took they took very good care of us we really should have been paid a lot more money but knowing the business side of it like i do now and what what insights i had at the moment uh, back before I knew all this stuff, um, had they paid us more money, the company would have shut down. Yeah. You know? But, but that doesn't mean that the company didn't earn value that should have been returned back to more of the employees, mm-hmm. like through more stock stock, uh, you know, options and things of that nature. But yeah, I mean, um, I loved all that stuff. But as yeah. far as good cultures nowadays, man, I think it's, it depends on who's your manager at the moment and what different company. I'm not sure how many of them are concerned with, uh, you know, complete customer or sorry, total, uh, employee satisfaction all the way down to the bottom Yeah. because ultimately we're still working on these pieces of commercial art on hard technology, brand new stuff. We're always trying to push the edge 
and we're competing against other people that are doing the same thing. Yeah. So it's like, what are you going to do? You know, at some point, do you just decide, I am going to come in on Saturday to put this new cool thing in? Well, there's no shortage of of employees who would be willing to do what you aren't willing to do. And that's the, that is the other part of this whole scenario, which is that there are so many people that want to make games and that can make games that it makes their value go down. It's and just way more we're, competitive. Dude, I mean, I would always just say it's it's the bean counters at the top ultimately look at everybody as a piece of tissue. Yeah. Not every one and not in every situation and all all those things that need to be said, but I mean, the, the reality is that that is the case and it's the case enough that you should be aware of it. And and that, that sort of brings me back full circle to the... Um, I knew what I was getting into when I got into this industry because my friend Steve was already in it and he was already working like a freaking madman. So I didn't go into it expecting to have a job where I'm going to go eight, you know, nine to five and put in my eight hours and then leave. I was like, no, this is something I want to do. It's a way of life. It's a, you know, it's something I've always wanted to do. And so I was just willing to kill myself for it. But I knew what I was getting into. And the people that don't know what they're getting themselves into they they won't last. They don't last. And honestly, um, the industry is is too crazy for people to expect to have that kind of a regular life um, on average. Yeah. Wow. I mean, do you think? Do you feel like that? Well, I mean, I say the industry. I mean, you could you could work at your house and you can make a Flappy Birds and get really really rich. I mean, lightning can strike you. Exactly. But if you get into the businessy side of it, where you know, you have ongoing concerns and public publicly traded companies and all that kind of stuff. It it just it turns into a machine. Do you, do you feel like what you experienced is is uh, attributed to the rise in independent developers now? Because uh, no. the, the the great rise. I mean, I feel like at least right now, not that it's easy to be an independent game developer, but it is. it's. <laughs> it is it's super easy. It's great. I feel it's, like people people look people are looking for indie games more yeah. now than ever. The democratization of game tools, the prolif- pro- proliferation of multiple avenues of distribution that now are in the charge of the people that are. I mean, you're your own damn publisher now. You know, <laughs> develop a game. You know, if if I sat down and I made a game in Unity. Um, I could release it in a matter of hours. And I mean, and I, I actually spent a bunch of time making a lot of very simple games in Unity, releasing them on Google Cardboard just to see what would happen. And I released, I think, six games in a couple of weeks yeah. with me doing it. And it's just like, if, you can, if I could do that and I had a publisher, which was basically the distribution method, which was Google Play, if I can do that, dude... There's just no excuses because I'm not a programmer. I'm not in anything. I'm just a. I just want to see it get done, and I'll just beat my head against the wall until I figure it out. And that's what I did. I did all that stuff. I had a couple of friends give me some, give me some pointers to get me started. But the rest of it was like, okay, I'm. It's four in the morning. How do you do this? Go to YouTube. There's the answer. Go to the <laughs> Unity forums. Figure it out. You've got Kickstarter. You know. Yeah. You've if, got you, if you want to get paid, yeah. Crowdfunding. Yeah, the, yes, that's Patreon. right. All of the tools are there. If you have the talent and you have the drive and you have the just the will to complete this thing, you know, there's just no way to stop you. You don't. You're not writing your own compressor, your video compressor, your you know your zip stuff. You're not doing any the of that stuff. It's already there. Oh, 
of all of that. Democratization. That's I like the that, word though. that I like. Better, yeah. Because it it now anyone can be a developer. Yeah, anyone. Absolutely. There's you, I mean there's Wikipedia has a list of free game engines. I mean it's the 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 tools are there. It's just are you do you really care enough to do it? Absolutely. And uh, and I I got to tell you that if that destroys the the game industry in some way so what burn it down you know you're always going to have your blockbusters but those indie games are there are going to be those big hits i mean and honestly i uh, in my experience as somebody that's followed the gaming industry pretty closely for the last probably 10 years um especially probably the last five Mm -hmm. um there's definitely a level of accountability that the general consumer is holding large companies like ea today to um, I mean, you're, they're always going to be selling games. There's no question mm-hmm. that people are going to pay for games before they know what the game is, whether it's going to be good, bad. Yeah. But I feel like there's definitely a level of accountability um, that, that the general consumer is holding those companies to now um, because they, they don't want to wait five years for a game that comes out and then ends up being subpar. But oh, happens, yeah, there's... You, there's, there's it's no always doubt. happened, but I, I feel like there's definitely a level of accountability um, being held on larger companies now. Nintendo is Nintendo. I feel like is honestly being is typically shown as the pinnacle of of caring about its consumers. You know, they may do it in in, in wonky ways, but you know, people are generally pretty happy with the content that event, that gets released. Well, Nintendo did a really good job of addressing. Okay, so one of the one of the problems back in the '80s with the the video game industry crash was just a, a lack of quality control because Atari didn't own the platform. Yeah. Basically, it was ju- judged to be a record player. So what that means is that nobody had a seal of quality saying that this is a good title that's going on this system. Nintendo started that with the Nintendo seal of quality, which basically means that we control the system, we control what's on the system, we control the quality level of what's on the system, and we also are going to control the release dates of your product. So it's like they wouldn't have two football games releasing on the same day, week, or month. So it's like Nintendo does not want to screw up the market. So they've, they've I think they did a great thing with trying to require games of a certain level of quality. Um, because as soon as you start getting garbage games out there, that platform's dead. And I think that's held true pretty I much. I just, as, and my, I spent, uh, you know, four or five years in college working in a video game store. And I, I feel like, it was, there was definitely... Shovelware and yeah, everything else, ex- yeah. exactly. You're killing I mean, it. Exactly. You know, the indie explosion or whatever. I'm like, dude, it may just be that there's too many people making too many games and everybody just isn't going to survive and you just have to, you know, suffer it out in your, The video you know. game free market. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and that's okay, you know. It's it's totally okay. You, may, you could make the greatest game in the world and the only person that plays it is one person that downloaded it in Kentucky who's machine fried and then they never told anybody about it. Mm-hmm. It was like, I don't know, but good games will find an audience to some degree, but, oh my gosh, man, the, the amount of money that it costs to buy an audience, to put things in front of them, like even our games at Origin, we would spend, let's, let's say, a million dollars on making a game, which was a lot of damn money back then. You'd spend a million dollars marketing the game. So whatever you, there was a sort of a truism that whatever you spent making the game is how much you spent marketing the game. Wow. So you had to think about all of those factors. So that's also cost of goods and everything else that gets associated with it. 
But you had to you had to look at that when you were the person doing the numbers, and remember, it was all about the relationship with the wholesaler and your big box of brushes. So. <laughs> Do you feel so? You started as a game developer or a yep. level developer, level designer. I level guess designer. maybe one way to say it. Mm -hmm. And and what I mean, did that position transform? Did you take the other roles? Well, um, the first in development. I had just been in a band for years, and the problems with being in a band are that um, you need to look at yourself as a business. You need to create something that people want. Mm -hmm. You have to uh, do things on time. You have to, you know, all the all of the hallmarks of making a damn video game in lots of ways. You've got creative people with creative differences. You've got to resolve those differences. You've got to create a product. You have to have a market. You have to have customers. You know, you have to go out and do your own marketing. All of the things that you would you would never really think about. I mean, a band is a business. You make merchandise, you have to go print stuff, blah, blah, blah. So that was my, my experience was I walked right out of being in a band to being an origin. And there, the people that were working on the project, the first projects that I was working on, there didn't seem to be um, anybody that wanted to really be like the conductor of this game, you know, this game project. And it became apparent to me immediately that that was one of the problems because the game had been going on for a long time. And um, what, I, what I noticed immediately was that this is exactly like being in a band. We have arguments over the silly little things. Yeah. You know, it's like, are you going to play a four-bar solo or whatever? You know, and it was just the same stuff. We were riffing on ideas with each other, you know, um, good stuff, bad stuff, you know, you're... You know, somebody's machine would crash, and it's just like somebody, you know, losing the drum head on their stuff. And it was like, okay, we just got to get into the machine. We'll have to redo this, whatever. And I, I realized that no one wanted to manage in the game industry. They were like thrust into it, or they fell upon it. And I was like, I love this stuff. Yeah. So I, I wanted to get into managing and helping people become better at what they do, and you know, that kind of jazz from the very beginning. And so that's kind of where where I started going, and uh, even on Wing Commander, when I was the lead designer of it, and it was, I played freaking just about every Wing Commander in every way conceivable. I <laughs> loved it. Um, but coming onto that project, I wasn't the original lead designer on it. It was a guy named Phil Wattenbarger, who was awesome, and there were other designers on the game that were amazing, but I came on, and my job wasn't to be the lead designer. My job was to be the uh, assistant producer that was running the PlayStation version because we were going to have the main PC build and then I was going to be managing the PlayStation team. Well, they decided that they wanted to fire the entire PlayStation team. What? And Phil left to go join Chris Roberts at his new company and there was a hole and I was like, I can do that. I mean, I just need to manage designers and do design on a Wing Commander. Are you kidding me? Space games, I love them. Mm -hmm. So, um... Yeah, that's how that's that's how that happened. I was just curious because sometimes I feel people end up they end up in a role they maybe necessarily didn't expect to be. I wasn't. In. I didn't expect to be able to do any of this stuff in exactly. the industry. And then and then after <laughs> taking on these new roles, you know, I I'm doing contract stuff or owning a studio. I've done just about everything from video editing to you know creating music. 
voice talent. I mean, you name it. You yeah. just do whatever it is you've got to do. Mm-hmm. And I've I've managed to survive a lot of the the cullings, whether it was moving from 2D to 3D or moving from PC to Mac or to console or um, doing Facebook gaming and Flash. I've just always tried to make like the next leap because if you don't, you're just stuck as you a get dinosaur, stuck behind. which is why I'm doing VR stuff now. And that was that. All right, so that was the second part of my conversation with Billy Joe Kane. I'll be releasing the third and final part here in a couple weeks when I'm closer to talking to more people involved in virtual reality, just like Billy's Radical Empathy Education Foundation. So I have officially started streaming, so you can find uh, my official Twitch channel at Cake Bites. Subscribe, um, and I'll be on. I'm, I haven't set a schedule yet. Maybe I'm, I think it's like Tuesdays or Thursdays. You know, it's a pretty regular schedule. So <laughs> please follow me there. Uh, if you go to cakebites.com, you can find links to all of my other social media. Follow me on all those places. And I have officially joined a podcast network. Um, <laughs> And it's called the Crossplay Compatibility Network. It's me and a bunch of other gaming podcasts just kind of working together to promote each other. So um, you can find their shows if you search for the Crossplay Compatibility Network on uh, Facebook and Twitch. You can follow us there. We'll be hosting each other uh, and each other's shows. So uh, if you want more gaming podcasts to listen to, that is the place to go. I will see y'all in two weeks.